I have never believed that these conversations should be restricted to the borders of Canada. Uh, one of the first requests that I put out when we started doing this now more than a year ago was to Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, that if he was going to be in town for the G7, maybe he could stop by and chat with me. Um, he turned us down, and since then he's been plummeting in the polls. <laughs> you draw your own conclusions. Uh, during the recent federal election campaign, uh, I had to decide who our guest was going to be this month, and um, the first thing I decided was it sure would not be anyone who had anything to do with the recent federal election campaign. And the second decision, which was even easier, was that since it looked like the president was against my expectations, against a lot of expectations, heading into an impeachment trial, that uh, we should get the obvious expert to talk about that. He's a senior writer for the Atlantic Monthly, which is enjoying an extraordinary resurgence uh, to the delight of all of its readers. He uh, has written several books, the most recent one, was called Trumpocracy. The next one coming out next spring is called Trumpocalypse. <laughs> Here to talk about all things Trump is David Frum. David? Um, do you still recognize the town? Uh, <laughs> Um, I was in Toronto this morning, and I do not recognize that. I grew up there, and I then walk into sections that I just find it so disorienting. Um, I, I grew up in uh, a Toronto that was um, a very you know, pleasant Canadian city, and now it is this glamorous global metropolis. And it sometimes, if you're a Torontonian, it sometimes takes you aback. That, that, uh, um, and you, there, there are blocks where you don't recognize it anymore. It's very exciting, but it's very disorienting. Compared to that, uh, Ottawa remains a beacon of stability. Uh, <laughs> Um, this is the second time we've chatted here in relatively short time. We, um, uh, I spoke to you after Trumpocracy came out yes. for the Ottawa Writers' Festival, and one of the themes of the conversation was even though you are uh, um, famously not a fan of this president, you did not think that uh, impeachment was wise or practical. Right. What was your argument then, and how has it changed? Um, my argument then was uh, an impeachment that did not lead to removal uh, would be interpreted by President Trump as permission, um, and you would get worse behavior, even worse behavior after. Um, uh, impeachment is the ultimate weapon in the congressional arsenal, and it's dangerous to use it when you know it's not going to have result. Um, and I held that view until just weeks before this pro I published about it. And I remain very anxious about the direction of it. Uh, the problem that was presented was Donald Trump did something that was so bad and did it so flagrantly that he took away the choice uh, from the Congress. They, they, they couldn't look the other way. Uh, they couldn't do a political resolution. He was so dead to rights. Uh, but I, I think everyone needs to have um, realism about what, where this process is going to go and the potential negative consequences. Um. Where it's going to go is into the Senate, where um, the Democrats don't have a majority, where uh, he's, he's, he's unlikely to be uh, removed from office over this uh, controversy. It could be even worse than that. Um, because, uh, as I think everyone now knows, the, the House of Representatives does the impeachment, which is the accusation. The Senate does the trial. The very first thing the Senate does when it does a trial is to decide on what the rules will be. 
The Constitution says the Senate is the sole judge of all impeachments. So, and, and there have been Supreme Court cases on this. The Senate can do whatever it wants, even literally settle the matter with a coin toss. It can do that according to the Supreme Court. Um, will there be a proper trial? Will this whole thing be wrapped up in three hours of procedures? That will depend on a majority of the Senate. And Mitch McConnell, the Senate leader, um, has a pretty solid majority in his pocket. So the only way you even get a real trial is if either Mitch McConnell decides he wants one or if enough Republican senators break with Mitch McConnell to create a majority, because the rules are set by majority, at least have a real trial. In the first days of this impeachment, um, there was a lot of excited, uh, excited counting of the probable allegiances of this senator or that. Uh, I, I got to assume that that is going to turn, to turn out to have been premature. There's no way to tell how Mitt Romney's going to vote, let alone the half dozen other senators who... Well, um, we, we did have a kind of early roll call. Uh, Lindsey Graham, uh, the senator for South Carolina, who's been a big supporter of President Trump's, um, wrote a letter condemning the House process. And on the first day that he got put it out, he had 46 of the 53 Republican senators sign it. So that raised some eyebrows, that seven senators had not. Um, then Graham went to work and he collected the last, he collected four more. And so they're now 50 segments. There are 46 on, uh, in the first hour. Uh, it took him another day or two to get it up to 50. There's still three outliers. And they are, uh, I'm now going to, I'm going to feel do a little Rick Perry moment here because I'm going to forget the third. Uh, uh, but, but one is Mitch Romney and the other is Lisa Murkowski, the senator from Alaska. I forget the third. But that's an indication um, that right now there are 50 who are going to go on record saying the process is not what we think it should be. Okay. There's still some, um, and there's still some chance of swaying the ones who signed that letter to change their minds. Although uh, uh, politicians around the world and perhaps especially congressional Republicans are not big on changing their minds these days. Well, this is also a political, not a legal process. Uh, from a legal point of view, I mean, there's no question what the president did. Um, that's, that's, I mean, there's, there's no, at this point, there is no factual dispute. Um, and so the only question is, what is your moral evaluation of? The, I mean, the president did interrupt congressionally voted aid, uh, military aid, $400 million to a country that, w that was at war. And let's just to put this in some context. Um, eight Ukrainian soldiers died in August uh, of 2019 while the aid was held up, and 50 more were killed and wounded in September. Uh, so real people lost their lives while this military aid was on hold. The president delayed it for his own purposes uh, to get um, fabricated, because what he wanted was um, the Ukrainians to announce an investigation. He didn't care about doing the investigation. So the announcement of the investigation is, is, is I mean, that is fake news. It was fabricated. And, and he put pressure on a beleaguered country to do it, and they nearly did it. And, and all of this might have worked had not a whistleblower uh, brought it to public attention. There's no dispute about all of that. Um, and I, I think there are relatively few Republican senators who are prepared to say this is proper and legitimate behavior. So it's a moral evaluation. And, that, and how senators come down morally, that will be political, not legal. Okay. What is it about Ukraine? Because um, going back to the summer of 2016, there was a a dispute over the GOP platform, yeah. and the Trump uh, campaign intervened to soften the language on providing lethal aid to Ukraine, which ends up being the issue that comes back around this year. Well, that is a superb question because um, it casts the really sharp light we need to see. It's not about Ukraine. It's about Russia. Um, and it, it is about Russia as a revisionist power. It is, it is a revisionist both, essentially starting in about 2013, 
um, Russia began, Vladimir Putin began to exert a much more aggressive policy of external influence. Uh, the invasion of Crimea, um, the interference in Ukrainian politics begins in 2014. The Russian presence in the Scottish independence referendum, where they, uh, I mean, many of these techniques are pioneered with Russian interference in the Ukraine. The, um, the Facebook and social media, they do it in the, for the first time in the Scottish referendum in 2015. Um, and then they're back in a series of elections in 2016 and 17. There is something important and sinister in the Trump-Russia connection. Um, and that is why he, care, he cares so much. That is why it's always Ukraine. Um, and you'll notice, I mean, he's got this, this fantastic theory about the importance of Hunter Biden in the scheme of things, of Hunter Biden as global criminal mastermind, which is um, a, a pretty improbable way to think about Hunter Biden. Um, but Hunter Biden also did business in China. So if you're going to make this story, you could, why, I mean, China would, you would think, resonate more. But there's something about the, the, um, the Russian interest in Ukraine that pulls Donald Trump again and again. And many of the ideas he has about countries like his, uh, he, he launched into a tirade on the Tucker Carlson show about Montenegro. Again and again, there are these, these tells that someone who has the interests of Russian foreign, foreign policy very much in mind is speaking directly into the president's brain, bypassing his advisors, and giving him a view of the world that accords with that of Vladimir Putin. Okay. Could it be as relatively anodyne as Donald Trump has crushes on strongmen? It could, that is a very plausible theory. It might be, it might be just that. Um, the only um, caveat beside that is there is, um, there is a trail of money, um, and uh, not just the dangled treat of the Trump Tower Moscow, um, but money uh, flowing through Trump condos, that, um, uh, in, especially the condos in Florida. Um, and uh, this, he did this very strange uh, real estate flip in, with a Palm Beach mansion, which put money in his hands at a time when he was really desperate. So there it has been a flow of Russian money to him. Um, but it's not, look, it's not impossible that Donald Trump is, as much, is both con man and Mark at the same time. I mean, certainly with Parnas and Fruman, who I think we're going to talk about, these two strange Ukrainian grifters. Um, they seem to have set a lot of this plot in motion, and, Donald, and they sort of duped Rudy Giuliani, and then in turn duped Donald Trump and made Trump and Giuliani dance to their tune rather than the other way around. Um, so I figure maybe the best use of, of, of much of the time that we have is to go through the sort of rogues gallery that's accreting around this, this uh, impeachment, but we have breaking news. Um, this afternoon, uh, it was announced that the, pre the president is appealing the Manhattan District Attorney, yeah. who has gotten a, a, an appeals court ruling um, uh, permitting access to eight years of the famous Trump tax returns. Right. And uh, so as recently as yesterday, I thought we're finally going to get to see these tax returns. But now the president is appealing to the Supreme Court. Why is he so adamant that people not see his tax returns? And how do you think that's going to play? I think he just doesn't want people to know how rich he is and how much money he's given to charity. Now, that's probably... <laughs> That's probably the reason. He just cares too much. He cares too much. And, you know, <laughs> um, uh, what is at stake here are not just the tax returns, but other business documents having to do with the, with the Trump organization. Um, and uh, they have an ex the, the deal they struck is for an expedited review. That is, um, that the prosecutors agreed that they are not going to ask that the judgment uh, be enforced from the appellate court, that they agree to wait on the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, in turn, will announced, I think within a month, whether it's going to review the case or not, and then has promised that the final result of the case will arrive no later than June of, of next year. Um, this is an example of 
one of the negative consequences of the Trump presidency. Um, but again and again, because Trump breaks unwritten rules, rules get written down in ways that they probably shouldn't be written down in order to constrain his behavior. So presidents have always voluntarily made very ample disclosures because they wanted to eliminate any suspicion that their behavior might be influenced by their own um, interests. When Donald Trump didn't do that, he forced the country into a position of, let us see what we can extract from the president. But it, the arguments that Trump's lawyers were making were not crazy arguments. That it really is, that if he loses at the Supreme Court, the, the new rule, and this has never been a rule before, will be, yes, a state attorney general, a state prosecutor, can force the president of the United States to take time away from the president's job and uh, comply with various summons for documents. And that is, it's a, there's a federalism issue there, there's an intrusion on the president's time. And the right answer is for the president, don't litigate these things, you know, give, voluntarily disclose everything that reasonable people would want disclosed and don't take, don't force us to come up with an answer to the question of what exactly, um, you know, there's this question of can the president be indicted or not. Um, and it, this is amazingly a question about which there's very, very little law. Um, You'll remember, or um, everyone's seen the movie Hamilton. So Aaron Burr kills Hamilton. At the time that Aaron Bill Burr kills Hamilton, he is vice president of the United States. And he is indeed indicted in the state of New Jersey and amazingly acquitted um, but, uh, because it, they had a broad view of dueling in New Jersey. But, um, uh, um, Something's but, never changed. Uh, but so he is, he is indicted. So the, the precedent is set that the vice president can be indicted. Um, but that's a long time. Uh, that's at a time when there was no federal criminal law. All the criminal law was state law. Um, in the case of Spiro, the next time that this comes up, it's the case of Spiro Agnew, and he's indicted in federal court. And it is actually the Agnew litigation that get, and the, the realization of how complicated this can be that gets the federal uh, Department of Justice to adopt its own internal rule: no more, no indictments of sitting presidents and presumably sitting vice presidents. But it's not good to argue this stuff out because the question that, that the judge asked about the, the state indictment is. Um, well, could Donald Trump shoot somebody in Fifth Avenue? Could the state of New York do anything about that? And again, we do not want the states to be able to indict presidents or vice president for any of the millions of laws that each state has. On the other hand, it is true if the president really does shoot somebody in Fifth Avenue, <laughs> something has to be done about it. So when you, there, there's just no end of ways where you put stress on the system by having such a flagrant lawbreaker as president. Let's go through some of the faces that we're starting to see on TV, beginning with the two gentlemen who were up yesterday on the first day of the hearings. Um, Bill Taylor, um, acting ambassador to yeah. Ukraine with the impressive helmet hair, and uh, George Kent, the State Department official with the bow tie. Right. Made me jealous because I wish I would wear bow ties more often. Um, who are these guys? Um, Bill Taylor is a former ar army officer, served in Vietnam, had a distinct, um, heroic career there uh, that uh, I think had a, was, a, was a career military guy at the end of his career, stepped uh, out of the military into the Foreign Service um, and has had a variety of, of roles. He's a non-political person, um, but he was someone who cared a lot about upholding the uh, independence of Ukraine from Russian invasion. Um, and um, Kent is the uh, uh, head of the, the uh, State Department official who oversees European and Eurasian affairs, so the point man on Russia and Ukraine, as well as um, uh, the European Union. Um, these are career people. They don't seem to be very political. Um, there are these challenges that Trump keeps calling them never Trumpers. And 
I think there's, there's probably a sense of, well, they're patriots, they don't take bribes, um, they don't have Russian interest, they, they are loyal to the United States and not to Russia. So I guess, yes, they are never Trumpers. But, but, <laughs> yeah, um, but if, if what is meant is that they are part people of strong party identities, the other thing that is so strange is that they're now, that they are, the conservative media have this culture war practice. They know how to do it. Um, and if there were anything hippie-ish about these guys, if, they, you know, if they'd attended a protest at any time in their lives, or they were women, or they were black, um, you know, or any, and belonged to any sexual minority group, I mean, Rush Limbaugh would know just what to do. And instead, he's got, I mean, these two representatives of the America that Donald Trump supposedly exists to chant. They're both they're not only white and male and wasp, but you know, one's not only a veteran, but a decorated veteran. But the same tactics are, are being used, but it, in a way it's got a kind of, as so often in the Trump era, a kind of farcical element. Really, we're supposed to believe that um, Taylor is some kind of subversive? Now, Taylor is the guy who, um, and I keep coming up against the sort of velocity of, of events. It's not that long ago that the texting uh, correspondence, but yeah. among uh, Taylor and Sondland and Volcker yes. was the week's big news, yeah. and now we sort of have to remind well, people. Uh, but he 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 gets to Kiev quite recently and discovers that there, there are. What's that? Okay. Taylor had served in Kiev before. Okay. Um, but uh, I think something's big. Something big has changed since his last time, right. which is that there's not just one pipeline. There's now a pipeline next to a funhouse. Yes. Well, this is this this dual track. Um, is something really to think about. Um, Donald Trump hurls around this phrase, the deep state, a lot. And, and in my forthcoming book, which you kindly mentioned, I have a chapter about the concept of the deep state. Um, and it, it is worth thinking about this for a minute. So the phrase deep state was originally coined to describe the state of, um, uh, post, uh, of uh, Ataturk's Turkey. Um, so when Ataturk created the modern Turkish Republic, um, he put out, he created a parliament, he created, there were, there were sometimes even elections, they were more or less fair. Um, but he also had a military and a security service that were completely unreviewable by the elected branches, that had their own policy, and that the elected officials could not control. Uh, and this concept of a military and security state within a state um, became a kind of a feature of development economics. And uh, people have then applied the term to describe Pakistan, where the military and the security services in the same way are independent of the lawful branches. So Donald Trump wants to make people believe that the FBI and the CIA and the US military are like this. And it's outrageous. It is absolutely outrageous. Because Donald Trump had power. If Donald Trump wanted to reorient American policy toward Russia, he could. He has, very, he could, he has the power to waive the sanctions on Russia. He has the power not to, uh, to stop military aid to Ukraine. Uh, he has the power to invite Putin to Camp David. He could, give, he could, um, he could appoint ambassadors that shared his point of view. Um, but at every point where there was a lawful presidential action to be taken, where there was a finding to be signed, or um, Donald Trump endorsed the pre-existing, continuous Ukraine-Russia policy of the United States. So he used his own proper presidential powers, which he could have used in a different direction, in light line with the foreign policy that Taylor was executing. Taylor was executing the foreign policy of President Trump as Taylor had every lawful reason to know it existed, every normal reason. Donald Trump then became a state within a state. He was the one who was, he's the deep state here. He's the one who is disregarding his own findings. He is the one who is violating his, who is ignoring his own ambassadors. He's the one who's constituting a secret unofficial government of non-public, of people who you know, uh, don't have security clearances, um, haven't met ethics requirements. 
and, and he is running against his own policy. Uh, and so uh, uh, the, the line of defense is, doesn't the president have a right to make foreign policy? And the, the answer is, yeah. I mean, it can be politically costly. If Donald Trump had openly avowed the foreign policy, the pro-Putin foreign policy he wants to run, the generally as part of his general pro-dictator foreign policy, that would have been costly. But he certainly had many, many powers to make it happen, even if Congress didn't like it. He chose almost never to do that. Um, and instead to do everything in clandestine and often illegal ways. Okay. Um, so Taylor gets on this email chain uh, ahead of the Trump call to Zelensky with these two other figures, Gordon yeah. Sondland, yeah. Uh, a nearly never Trumper, a prominent Republican who was not a big fan of the, of, of the um, uh, candidate, but ended up giving a million dollars to the campaign to land his awesome. job as... Uh, as um, uh, ambassador to the European Union. And then this figure, Kurt Volker, who I find very interesting because I actually interviewed him about Trump's official yeah. uh, uh, Ukraine policy. And I, there's a lot of speculation about what side was Volker on. Uh, I find Volker one of the most sympathetic characters in this story. Um, and like, like many sympathetic characters, he becomes then the victim of his own virtues. Uh, so Kurt Volker is a longtime expert on... Um, Eurasia, um, and uh, a McCain guy, an undoubted patriot, and a man of a tremendous ability. Um, Wells, I've never personally met him, but I know many people who know him. Everyone thinks extremely highly of him. He was running the McCain Institute at a university. Uh, and he had a mission. His mission was get the Ukrainians the arms they need. And it became kind of a bridge over the river Kwai problem, which is, so he's mostly in Ukraine. Washington is very far away. And he knows exactly what Donald Trump is. But he treats Donald Trump as a problem to manage, like any other logistics problem in his mission of getting Ukrainians the arms they need. And so he begins to make concessions and compromises uh, in order to fulfill what he has decided is his primary goal. And he, like Bridge Over the River Kwai, um, that the concessions and the compromises begin to devour the actual mission. And so he, he finds himself, and this is a problem I think many good people have had in the Trump. They're trying to do good, but the price of doing good is a lot of wrong. And there, there comes a moment where you have to wake up and say, what's the balance here? How much? And, and then depending on the psychology of the person, they're able, either able to see that or not to see that, and to act or not to act. But Volcker was put into this, um, into this position. But I, I think he is, uh, I mean, he stands more than Bill Taylor, who actually was able to put his foot down at the first instance. Partly because he arrived later, and partly because he had a much wider portfolio of issues rather than this one specific mission that Volcker had. Um, that he stands for a lot of the people who tried to do the right thing in the Trump era and paid a price for it. Okay. Who's next on my list here? Sondland is a different kettle of fish. Sondland made a statement early on, which he will now, it seems, be amending low into the end of days. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. He said, I didn't hear anything, and then he said, I heard a lot, and now he has this second July 26th conversation to explain away. So Sondland, um, who is the child of German-Jewish refugees, um, very successful in the hotel business in the Pacific Northwest, um, and uh, um, a next-tier Republican donor. 
And many of his friends, who had given many, many millions of dollars, had become, become ambassadors. And one of the strange quirks of American life is even though you're not supposed to, uh, people who have been ambassadors call themselves ambassador for the rest of their lives. Um, and again, it, the, the rules are very clear. Once the job is over, you lose the title in the United States. And, and indeed, the rules are quite clear. It's actually kind of unethical. Like if you're a former judge, you're never, I like would judge these Fox traffic court judges. Um, continue to call themselves judge on the air. They're, I mean, there are actually codes of judicial conduct where you're not supposed to do that, but fortunately none of them were ever real judges in the first place, so there's no one to reprimand them. <laughs> the New Jersey traffic court doesn't really care, but Judge Janine. Um, uh, but, you're not, but so Sondland wanted, so he, and he was sort of looking for his way in, um, and one of the things that happened, it always cost less, to buy, at least in the early days, to buy into Trump. And then he just, he got vain. He's, he was out of his depth. I mean, I'm sure he's a very successful, capable businessman. Um, but he thought he'd made a lot of money, so he thought he was an expert about everything, including Ukraine. And then he elbowed his way in, and the way to el he elbowed his way in was we're saying, well, the president wants some unethical things done. I notice none of you other people are willing to do them. I will do the unethical things, and therefore I will be the president's point man. And they all say, okay, can we just memorialize I will do unethical things for the president? <laughs> and he's dealing with people who have a lifelong habit they've learned through a career in the Foreign Service of memorialize. And so... Um, that uh, Taylor, like James Comey, they take notes. And, and they also, you know, when, when someone does something wrong, they text back. And, and so you have these comic, comic exchanges where, can we take this offline? You want to take this criminal conversation offline. Very good. <laughs> you are going to say unethical things to me on the phone in a few minutes. I look forward to our criminal conversation. <laughs> um, the next guy on my list is Rudy Giuliani. Um, okay, I, I have a little bit of a conflict of interest here. I served on the Rudy Giuliani for President campaign in 2007, 2008. I'm glad you admitted it before I had to bust you, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so the, one of the questions that many people are wondering is what happened uh, to Rudy Giuliani? Um, you know, Rudy Giuliani was uh, in, of the 90s, and you'll, many will remember him. He was a tough character, um, you know, not the cuddliest person in, in politics. I mean, even by New York standards, not the cuddliest. Uh, but a, a tremendously effective mayor in all kinds of ways. Not we remember the crime, but there are many other, many other things that he did. Um, and then um, on 9/11, he behaved so heroically. And in the aftermath of 9/11, that he, I mean, I, he went, I think, to funerals for every police officer, every, and, and what that must take. But he went to everyone. Um, and and then something. And, and when I worked on his campaign in 2007, he was already there had been some changes. Um, I think at the time the way I thought about it was I, I'd seen him at fairly close range in the 1990s. I hadn't seen him in a while. Um, and I was a volunteer. I was an employee of the campaign. Uh, and um, I knew he, he'd had a very serious health crisis in, in 2001, 2002, prostate cancer. He'd gone through a lot of treatment. And it wasn't surprising that after that you might not be quite the same person that you were. Um, and then the deterioration has gone farther. And I, I mean, I can speculate, but I don't know. But it, it is a sad thing to see because um, this was somebody who once stood for something very, very great in American life. Um, and now what's... Uh, I'm glad I just get to ask the questions because uh, this is easier. How do you encapsulate the role that he has played over the last year? What on earth has he been up to? I, 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 it is so... He's done so much harm to Trump and to himself. Um, I, 
You know, this, I wish this were my line. I don't know the anonymous author of this, but um, early in the Trump administration, um, somebody who worked inside the White House said, because there was this line of defense that people who were pro-Trump would say, he's just playing a much more sophisticated game. He's playing three-dimensional chess. And this person who would worked with Trump said, his defenders say he's playing three-dimensional uh, press, but the people who work with him know it's just it's a day's work to stop him from eating the pieces. <laughs> um, uh, so... I don't think that Julia, I mean, they, they, there's no plan. I mean, there's, there, is, there are these impulsive actions. Um, uh, alcohol does seem to be a factor. Um, and uh, the president, again, makes impulsive, but they do not have, they sometimes have tactics, they never have strategy. And in Trump's case, there's this problem if he really doesn't understand how the government works. And, um, and, he's, uh, and that has been, I think, one of the real mercies of the Trump years. When you think how corrupt he is, how authoritarian he is, how beholden to foreign powers, um, what an effective demagogue he is. I mean, if he had also had some understanding of the machinery he was trying to control and had been a little harder working, he could have done a lot more harm than he's done plenty of harm, but he could have done more. Um, and two of Giuliani's associates are these gentlemen, Parnas and Fruman, yeah. who were arrested at the airport with one way tickets out of the country. Um, uh, ran a company called Fraud Guarantee. Yes. Um, and uh, in the HBO movie that is coming down the pike will be played by Ryan Gosling and yeah. Henry Cavill, or I don't know who. Um, who the hell are these two guys? Um, so these are um, people cast off by the post-Soviet wreckage. Um, and uh, one of the things that, um, they're, so they're two, they're uh, Ukrainian born, US naturalized, very small time operators, uh, who seem to have been backed by some bigger oligarchical operators. It was not their own money that they were spending, but they were looking for a payday. And the payday was to get a small piece of the Ukrainian natural gas business. Um, the Russian gas that flows into Europe, some of it crosses through Ukraine, and then there's a lot of both Russian pressure on Ukraine because of that gas, and also there are a lot of payoffs, and they're hoping to get a piece of that action. And they tried to mobilize Giuliani to get Trump to help them, and their technique was to feed Trump all of these crazy conspiracy theories. If we, if we could make him believe that, Joe, that this somehow would be bad for Joe Biden, we can get him interested, and then we can get our crooked little piece of uh, the oil and gas business. Their story, I think, casts a spotlight on a bigger theme, uh, which is um, for a long time, when you studied international relations, um, that you were told there's an argument between people who believe um, in, that it's important to study the internal behavior of states and others who believe that the only thing that mattered was the external behavior. And so when you're doing foreign policy, it shouldn't, if, you know, if a country is authoritarian or corrupt, that's a problem for the citizens of that country. It doesn't really... It's not relevant to understanding foreign policy. And I think we've learned in the post-Soviet era how wrong that is. That corruption, when it becomes big enough, becomes a factor in international politics. So there's just too much stolen money inside Russia for it to be stored inside Russia. It has to splash out all over the world. And it shows up. It buys apartments in London. It buys ranches in Arizona. Um, Putin's fortune, however big it is, it can't possibly be inside Russia. It's somewhere outside of Russia. And it's too big for it to be in the Cayman Islands or Bermuda or Dubai. It is, it's probably, you know, I'm sure he has assets in Canada. Um, and, and 
so these, these people bring this post-Soviet corruption to the United States, and they found in Donald Trump someone to cooperate with, which takes us back to your earlier question. What example is the Trump-Russia connection? And that's why these business documents become so important. Um, since we're taking a little detour into uh, almost classic questions of foreign policy, let me put to you an argument that I've sometimes heard in relation to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, Putin's you know, much more muscular foreign policy in recent years. It is that he was reacting to essentially NATO overreach, that the West got greedy and started expanding into what should reasonably be Russia's sphere of influence, and that after a while, uh, Putin got tired of being pushed around. I'm sure you've heard the argument. I, I, I have certainly heard the argument. I, I, I think it's factually untrue, and I think it's also unacceptable for other reasons, just factually, um, that uh, Ru Russia um, is one of those who guaranteed the independence of Ukraine. When the nuclear missiles came out of Ukraine, when Ukraine, you, there was a period where uh, the Russians had their nuclear weapons in Kazakhstan and Ukraine. And when they took them back, many of them were then decommissioned um, at American expense, but when they took them back, they made certain guarantees that in return for Ukraine, Ukraine could have been a nuclear state, or a nuclear weapon state, and it gave up its nuclear weapons capability in return for certain guarantees from Russia. So the bad faith is very much on the Russian side. Um, uh, second, um, that the NATO was, that the change in Russian behavior happens first. I mean, the NATO enlargement happens in 2004. Um, and Russia is already behaving aggressively. Um, and that's, that's when the Baltic Republics are incorporated, and, and Ukraine, of course, is not. Um, but I think that the final point is um, that there is a bad habit, and we talked before about the importance of understanding the internal behavior of the state, of, of interpreting, the, of, of using the word Russia to mean the Russian kleptocracy. What are the interests of Russia? Um, not having a life expectancy for men of 62? Um, not having a standard of living lower than that of any European state, um, that, that what is in Russia's interest is to become a normal European country, um, which in the 1990s we hoped it would soon become. And uh, in many ways, the independence of Ukraine is as important to Russia's future as it is to anybody else's, maybe may more important. Russia minus Ukraine is not an empire and has a hope of evolving into a normal European country. Russia plus Ukraine is much, much more powerful state, but because they have to subordinate the people of Ukraine, Russia that holds Ukraine is condemned to be an authoritarian state. Um, and so we're not even doing Russia any, any favors by allowing it to, um, to, to grab Ukraine. Finally, there are 50 million people in Ukraine, um, and which makes it a, 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 it's a, it's a bigger country than, than Spain, almost as big as Italy, and vast in terms of expanse. Um, and uh, they, the, they don't agree that they should be in Russia's sphere of influence. And, and then the, the question that we're asked not just to keep our hands off, but actually to acquiesce as Russia attacks um, a European state, and a European state with which the United States made guarantees to as well when it took the nuclear weapons out back in the 1990s. Um, oh, good. The next names on my list are Joe and Hunter Biden. Yes. Um, Questions of judgment arise, if, yeah. uh, if not of legality. I mean, yeah. um, what was that family up to? Well, um, there is a long and unfortunate pattern of the immediate kin of presidents and vice presidents get, being, getting economic advantages that are explained only by um, their family name. Uh, and this is uh, 
true on both sides of the aisle. I mean, Neil, you remember the name Neil Bush, who got involved in the savings and loan. Um, you remember the amazing career of Billy Carter, I think Richard Nixon. Everyone's got a brother or a nephew. Um, and there are limits to what anybody, I mean, Hillary Clinton's brother, Hugh, I mean, that, that Hugh Rodham, I mean, they, they get into all kinds of stuff. Um, and one of the things that Trump, that Trump defenders do is they look at the normal level of self-dealing and petty corruption in the American political system. And indeed, it is a dirtier political system than Canada's or you know, uh, Germany's or um, Britain's. Um, probably not as dirty as France or Italy's, but not these days. Um, and they say, see, see, things like this have happened before. So what Trump, what Hunter Biden was doing was, was yeah, like what Hugh Rodham was doing, what like Neil Bush was doing, he was trading on a famous name to pick up um, a not exactly fully earned few tens of thousands of dollars. And the reason that the system has never really done anything about people like this is at some level it didn't matter that much. Um, that the amounts of money are comparatively moderate uh, and the influence brought to bear is not very big. I mean, if there were any, if it were true that Hunter Biden were, as the Trumpist fantasy says, having an influence on Ukraine policy or had he been doing that during the Obama administration, that would have been a giant scandal. Um, but in fact, uh, what we can see is whatever Hunter Biden was doing, uh, Joe Biden's role was absolutely on the up and up. I mean, the, the vice president was doing the right things. He was pursuing a corruption initiative. People talk about, there's, there's ambiguity always in, in, in the English possessive form. because They talk about Trump's corrupt, you know, Trump had this as a corruption item. Think, yes, but you're using that as if you want me to think you mean an anti-corruption item, whereas actually he was, you know, Trump has an affirmative, has a keen interest in the corruption issue. He wants more of it. Um, uh, but Joe Biden was running a proper anti-corruption initiative in, in Ukraine. And, um, and it was hard. I mean, I, was, I remember uh, visiting Ukraine a couple of times in 2014 and 2015. And the number, there were um, a very few clean as a whistle people. There were a number of people who were trying to be as clean as possible under the circumstances. And there were a large number of very bad actors. But Biden was, everyone who was a good actor in Ukraine spoke well of Biden. Um, it was a bit of a leading question earlier when I asked what it is about Ukraine. Um, uh, shady goings on almost always uh, have an easier time of it in what are essentially rotten boroughs. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, to say the least, an open secret that there are serious governance issues in Ukraine, that there's vast amounts of money sloshing around with not a lot of people paying close yeah. attention to the rules. And... Um, that becomes an attractive theater if you want to do things that are not easy to explain in Toronto and Ottawa. Yeah. And, and, and I, and, and, which leads to the question, do you think Ukraine is the only place where uh, Trump, Trump Giuliani were seeking to advance their issues um, and I, their I, interests? I, I think there, there, there are crooked tr Trump deals all over the world. And I wrote about this in Trumpocracy, and, and we just sort of lose sight of it. But Trump is receiving streams of payments, we don't know how much, and we don't know how important they are to him, from, there's a, there are two Trump Towers in Istanbul. Now that's a licensing deal. Um, what is the nature of the deal? How much does he get? How important is it to him? Is it a flat fee or is it a percentage? Does he have an interest in the performance of those towers? We don't know. There's a Trump licensing deal in the Philippines. And um, the, the, in fact, the Filipino state appointed Trump's business partner as their special economic envoy to Washington. Trump gets, has a stream of payments coming to him from a number of projects in India. Um, there's a project in Argentina. There was, there was a project in Panama. Um, and uh, we know astonishingly little 
about all of these things. Uh, because the disclosure system is set up to capture, which it was designed in the 70s, to capture the kinds of issues that affluent, well-paid professionals or normal corporate executives would have. So uh, what stocks do you own? What debts do you have? You know, what interests and what kind of firms? Um, but if you are at the end of a long chain of numbered companies or trusts within trusts, it's not going to be very good at capturing uh, the, uh, those, those disclosures. And, um, and, and Trump has set up his affairs not in a way to um, evade detection. And they are shot through. I mean, ProPublica uh, brought to light um, one story that they were able, through a very ingenious piece of reporting, to get hold of two sets of books for, on two of his buildings. One, the reports of the revenue that they made to the tax inspectors, and one, the reports that they made to their lenders. Uh, and the report to the lender was almost literally double the report to the tax inspectors. Now, it's not completely impossible that there is an innocent explanation for this. Um, so I don't want to say anything that is going to be actionable on air. So always bearing in mind that somebody might have some innocent explanation for this. It looks a lot like it's either bank fraud or tax fraud or maybe a judicious combination of both. Um, and that's just the two buildings where they were able to find records. And that kind of thing is going on all over the planet. Uh, but Russia and Ukraine do seem to have a special place uh, in Trump's mind and a special hold on his attention. Um. Since this is now being played out in the congressional arena, and especially in the House of Representatives, I wonder if I can ask what you make of Nancy Pelosi's performance to date yes. as the House Majority Leader and Adam Schiff as the committee chair who's prosecuting this. Well, so Nancy Pelosi had, had been extremely reluctant on the impeachment file. Um, uh, for some of the reasons that I said at, at the beginning, she shared some of those, and she had some special concerns, which is the Democrats had a good election in 2018 precisely because they elected many representatives from very Republican-leaning areas. And Pelosi has always made it very clear she pays much more attention to her most endangered members than she does to her safest members. Uh, and it, impeachment would present awkward political problems for many of those people, and so she didn't want to do it. Once the hand was forced by... The, by the whistleblower revelation. Um, then, what, then she revealed another aspect of her personality, which is she is one of the most effective, unsentimental, and accurate vote counters that um, the House of Representatives have seen probably since the time of Tip O'Neill, maybe even more than Tip O'Neill. Um, so when she, you know, there, there were these moments when, when the process started that Kellyanne Conway went on TV and, and said um, that she didn't believe that uh, Nancy Pelosi had the votes. I said, if the cameras are on me, I would never say Nancy Pelosi didn't have the votes about anything. Because if Nancy Pelosi thinks she has the votes, she's got the votes. I mean, and, and, and if, if she doesn't have the votes, she's not going to uh, put it into motion. Um, a Adam Schiff is a very meticulous and precise person. Um, and he has, I mean, the, that Trump, it's, it's like Bill Taylor. Trump's effort to make him um, a butt is so improbable. I mean, Schiff is so um, upright and so precise in his thinking. And so, um, such a conscientious chair of one of the most sensitive committees. And one of the things that has really gone wrong in the Trump age, um, you know, House committees are often pretty raucous places. But the Intelligence Committee was always a little different, both in the House and the Senate. Uh, it was a, quite an honor to be on the House committee. You saw stuff that normally um, House members didn't see. And there, there had historically been, and they're very new, they date back only to the middle 70s. Um, there had historically been a higher level of comedy 
even on the House uh, Intelligence Committee and certainly on the Senate. And the kind of behavior that you're seeing from people like Devin Nunes and, um, is really, and now Jim Jordan, the fact that a character like Jim Jordan is on the committee, a guy who could not get a security clearance um, if he applied for one, uh, uh, it's, it's really disturbing and, uh, and will have long-term institutional consequences. Let's, let's go back to a little bit of your own personal evolution uh, with regard to the Republican Party, because you've been um, um, uh, more and more of a thorn in the side of the institutional Republican Party, basically, as it's gone along. But I get the impression that your stance with regard to the Trump administration is different in kind and not just in degree. I remain a registered Republican. Um, and... Uh, if I lived, I live in the District of Columbia, um, if I lived in a state, I would probably be voting for Republican politicians for most state offices. Um, and uh, my, uh, two of my children live in California, a third seems to be on her way there, and if I end up in order to be close to the grandchildren uh, living in California, I'm sure, and in the California context, I'm certainly a Republican. Um, so I've not had, there are people who've had some kind of break with the party. Um, I've had, so I've had, I retained that part as an identity. I have certainly had since the Bush years, and especially since the global financial crisis, a kind of ideological shift, and to the extent that anybody's interested in it, and why should anybody be, but I, I think if you take public stances and you change your mind about things, you owe explanations, and I've, I've tried to provide them as I go, um, as I say, for the nine people who care, or six, three. Um, They're all watching CPAC. <laughs> um, but uh, tr um, Trump is not an, a Republican, and he's not a conservative. Um, he's just... He's in it for himself. But he has taken, he, has, he couldn't have gotten as far as he did but for institutional defects in the Republican Party and in the conservative world. So that, that, that he himself is not an indictment of conservatism. But the fact that he's gotten away with it and has mobilized conservative support, that is an indictment. And so the, the thing that I write a lot about is what has gone wrong with this great political movement that it became so vulnerable to, to someone like this? What will happen? And how do you put it on its right footing? Because one of the things I, I argued at length in the Trumpocracy, we have a uh, story in the Atlantic and the current issue by my editor, Yoni Applebaum, who uh, continues this argument, um, is in developed societies, authoritarian movements tend to be stronger on the right than on the left. And they're on the right because there's a wide distribution of property. There are more haves than have-nots. There are more people with the state. So, and, and nationalism is a more powerful force than socialism. Um, and so you get authoritarian tendencies tending to spring up on the right. The way that those are normally contained is by healthy, well-functioning, center-right parties that say, these are, you know, national, these are normal human impulses. Um, some degree of, you can call it xenophobia if you want, in-group preference if you want to be more clinical. That's normal to human beings. And what you need to do is you need to challenge it, channel it within parties that are committed to democratic processes, committed to constitutional outcomes, um, liberal in the broadest sense of the word, and, and that way you take these parts of the human soul and put them into normal political competition. If your center-right party ceases to function, then these impulses in human, human beings turn themselves into fascist movements, and, um, or quasi-fascist, or near-fascist. And that is something that is happening throughout the Western world. And uh, one of the ways that Canada, one of the reasons Canada is a very important country to study right now, is Canada is an example of a country where the system is working, where you have functioning center-right parties that are able to and take some of these impulses that are just latent in, in 
all human beings and, up and are stronger in certain human beings and are able to challenge, and they've successfully done it. And that's why Canada has been more immune to this kind of politics than any other country. Um, and the country, and in countries like Britain and the United States, and especially in England, where the center-right parties have collapsed, uh, then these impulses run rampant. And uh, you're not going to get democracy restabilized, and you're not going to get the end of this kind of populist politics until you have, again, center-right parties that accept democratic competition. Um, speaking of Britain, you've been more and more fascinated, I think, by Brexit. Uh, and... Uh, basically, not a fan of okay. the of the of the project. Uh, it, it is a it is an issue that has divided Canadian Conservatives. Yeah. Most prominent Canadian Conservatives, I think, were advocates of Brexit. Yeah. Um, why are you more skeptical? Well, I think the Canadian Conservatives got drawn in just by affinity. Um, I spent a lot of time in Britain. I was for three years the chair of the leading British centre right think tank, and my friends were most and who are the friends also of. Um, many of these prominent Canadian conservatives, they were for it. And I think, I, I, I sort of understood, I understood I, the line I kept using when I was spending more time over there was, if I were English, not British, because it's not a British project, it's an English project, if I were English, maybe I would feel as you do. But you have to understand that I am not. And as a North American, I think about it from a North American point of view, and from a North American point of view, it's a calamity. And I also, um, but so long as you English people, so long as you level with your voters about how expensive it's going to be, um, if they decide they want to continue this Lonely Island story outside the European Union and they're prepared to pay the cost, um, I, I, look, I wouldn't do it, but I, I respect it. It's not like Trump. Um, there, is, there, it, there are honorable reasons to be for Brexit, and where there are no honorable reasons to be for Trump. Um, the, the problem is, of course, that people did not accurately count the costs. Um, and the costs are very large, both to Britain and to the European Union. And so from a North American point of view, and that's how I see it, from the foreign policy interests of Canada and the United States, it is an unmitigated disaster. Because uh, Britain in the EU is a guarantor of uh, an American window into that it, morass? <laughs> Britain in, first, Britain in the EU means that both the EU and Britain will be richer and stronger and better trading partners and better security partners. Um, uh, second, um, when you take Britain out of the EU, the, the, um, the EU becomes, has a much more difficulty functioning because, the, as you say, the outward-looking economies, the free trade, tend to be the small ones, the Netherlands, Sweden, Denmark. Uh, the bigger economies, France, Italy, Spain, tend to be more statist. The biggest economy of them all, Germany, has permanent legitimacy problems. So the Germans cannot impose their will on other members, and the Dutch, the Danes, the Swedes are too small and weak. When Britain is in, if Britain and Germany agree, there will be free trade, um, we will have open telecoms markets, uh, American and Canadian firms will be able to compete equally, they can really make that stick in a way that the Germans can't on their own. Uh, Britain in the EU means the EU does not develop its own army as a rival to NATO, because Britain is very committed to, uh, to NATO. Um, and um, Br Britain in, in the e EU um, means that uh, the EU is a force for free trade in world agriculture, which it otherwise has a tendency not to be. Uh, and finally, it's, just, it's, it's good for American and Canadian business firms. I mean, that, that uh, Canadian particularly are attracted to um, being based in the London market. There are Canadian firms that have made significant investments in the UK on the assumption they would have ready access to the European Union market. Um, and if that doesn't happen, uh, the last thing is, when Brexit is complete, which it looks like it will be, 
And when the, the cost of Brexit is experienced, and when the voters who were most for Brexit realize that it is not the answer to any, never mind my friends and their elegant arguments about parliamentary sovereignty, that the people who voted for Brexit because they thought it would mean um, more government spending, lower taxes, shorter queues, and no more foreigners, uh, when they find out that it means the opposite of all of those things, uh, that is going to create a populist reaction inside the UK that is going to be very, very da dangerous. Um, one of the, that, and I don't know whether it will take, it'll probably take a more right-wing than left-wing form, but it is going to be very destabilizing to the integrity of the United Kingdom and to the future of British politics. One of the themes of Trumpocracy is that liberal democracy, broadly defined, is on the back foot yeah. in many countries. In Poland, in Hungary, in Turkey, in uh, um, many countries, Spain, um, uh, Italy. Y you start to think, uh, I go to uh, international relations conferences, the Halifax Security Forum and things like that, and people say things like, you start to think that nothing will ever get better, that yeah. this is essentially a sort of a uh, civilizational spiral. Yeah. Uh, do you have the same pessimism? Um, I, I, I think it's... I just have an allergy to thinking in terms of optimism or pessimism. Because what, what those things do is they treat the future, those moods treat the future as a thing that already exists. Um, and so they say, what do you see? And the answer is, I, I see the possibility of human action. Um, and when you say, what, what, will, what will it be? It will be what you make it. And, and so although probably psychologically and temperamentally I incline to pessimism, there are very few Ashkenazi optimists, uh, <laughs> Uh, I think intellectually you have to act as if you can control the future, even if, you, even if the odds are against you. Um, and I sometimes think that maybe our troubles are going to be, they may be a kind of booster shot to our inoculation. What was the most powerful force that liberal democracy had going for it? It was the memory of socialism and fascism and Nazism and the war. I was in, a few weeks ago, I, I was in Dresden, where they've just completed the rebuilding. Um, that... Uh, Germany is now experiencing the longest period of internal peace it has had since the time of the Roman Empire. Um, so they understand what this order has meant for them. And the, 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 and the, um, but people tend to forget, um, human, and human beings have to sometimes relearn lessons. One of the things that may be um, a blessing in disguise of the Trump era is that Trump has reminded people of what can be. And, uh, so these conferences you go to, that people are both being, are expressing pessimism, but I hope they're also expressing some rededication to the concept and some willingness to work a little harder, um, to stabilize these institutions, and to communicate to new generations why they're precious. Um, before we came out here, you were quizzing me about the ramifications of the recent Canadian federal election. Um, uh, what do you make of Canada's internal politics right now? Your friend Jason Kenney is, uh, our friend Jason Kenney is the yeah. Premier of Alberta. Uh, the Liberals are tempted to move further left here yeah. in Ottawa. Um, what do you make of the, as a, as, a, as, a, as a fond observer of the Canadian scene? Well, I'm a little more than that, so I have to be careful what I say. My sister is a member of the Canadian Senate, and so the first thing I have to say, whatever she says, I agree with it. Um, uh, and... Uh, and I, I, um, 
I tend to, I, 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 just, I, I know, I care a lot about Canada, I buy my own property here, but I do see it a little bit from an outsider's perspective these days, just because of, of the way I spend my time. So there, I, you have to, I, I caveat it. Um, I, I, my bottom line on observing Canada is I think Canadians, um, Canadians know this. Canada's the most, is a country that with both a tremendously successful society, but also a real vulnerability to political instability more probably than any other G7 country. It can split on linguistic lines, Quebec versus uh, the English-speaking parts of the country. It can split on regional resource versus non-resource, west versus center. Um, uh, it can, um, there, there is a radicalized and um, uh, indigenous population that has sometimes taken um, extra-constitutional and even violent action against the state, or threats of violence against the state. Managing all of this uh, requires extraordinary tact and delicacy. And that's why Canadian politicians, the successful ones, have tended to be soft-spoken. Uh, because uh, um, Canada, I, I sometimes, it's like a, a bank built on top of an um, explosive factory that everyone is having a good time with the proceeds of the bank, but the thing could blow sky high at any minute. And, it's just, and so it's important not to take too many risks with Canadian political stability. And... Um, I would credit the governments of the period from about um, 1985 to about 2015 of doing a, being very conscious of the need to manage that stability. Not always successfully. Uh, Brian Mulroney tried too hard and brought about actually, you know, uh, made the problem worse when he was trying to make it better. Uh, but if you, um, if, if Western Canadians don't feel, if Quebecers don't feel, um, that they are included in the concerns of people at the center, it can be very divisive. And if promises are made to the indigenous people beyond what the country is able to honor um, at a, uh, in a realistic way, uh, that also has a, has a backlash. And so I, I just feel that not just in terms of what it has borrowed, but in other ways, the government, this present government has issued, written a lot of checks uh, that uh, well, I sincerely hope that Canada has the ability to cash, but that I worry whether it does or not. You talk about the virtue of, of soft-spoken leaders. I, I, I quickly ran through my Canadian political leader Rolodex, and I, I got very far down it before I could find anyone who prides himself on being soft-spoken. Um, well, that's not, uh, I don't know. Um, uh, most of the Ontario premiers, um, and, until the present one, have been, have been quite soft-spoken. Absolutely. I was going through my current. Yeah. Um, um, well, no, but that, I think what has happened, and this is the test, is that, um, that you do have um, more pressure on the system. And I think that is, um, that's a hazardous thing for Canada because uh, what, what makes Canada, what has always made Canada work is some mutual adjustment of uh, the various leading forces, some understanding that you can only press so hard. And uh, Canada's run into crisis, like at moments like 1982, with the dispute over between uh, Pierre Trudeau and Pierre Lougheed over energy futures, where uh, you had two leaders who were both pressing very, very hard and um, put tremendous pressure. And then wiser heads prevailed, and the crisis was de-escalated. Um, we've got about probably two minutes left. What are the moments, uh, as, as, as you try to bring a book in for a landing next spring, what are the big moments on the calendar over yeah. the next year that you and others will want to keep an eye on? Well, certainly the trial in the Senate. I think the, um, the release, the, 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 I think it's going to be probable that Trump, that important parts of Trump's finances get released. 
And when they do, many things that we are curious about now may be answered, including the nature of the Trump-Russia connection. And that may turn out to be, um, I mean, there's nothing in the Constitution that says you can only impeach a president once. <laughs> is, um, is he still going to be so much of a relative asset for the Republicans that most of them stick with him? They're, they don't stick with him because he's an asset. Uh, they stick with him because they're afraid. Um, he has not been an asset. And there, I, I, I don't think the Republicans are going to have a very good election in 2020. And it's very possible they are going to have a terrible election in 2020. Um, in a, at a time, by the way, when if you ask Americans about their finances, most Americans express reasonable satisfaction. If right now uh, the United States were governed by President Al Gorethm, um, the, the, the incumbent party would be on its way to re-election because every normal political science indicator would say the incumbent party should win. People are content with their, reasonably content with their economic circumstances. Uh, they are giving their healthcare system better marks than Americans usually do, or at least their own personal experience with the healthcare system. They're giving it better marks than Americans usually do. Um, the incumbent party should win, except it is weighted down by the most consistently unpopular president in the history of polling. Um, I argue with my wife every week about whether he's going to win anyway. He sure did in 2016. It's, it, it is possible to come up with a scenario where he wins. Uh, but that means losing the popular vote by a second time and probably by more. Uh, and that means everything has to go right for him. And that also means that he's going to, he, it will go right from after he runs a campaign of racial provocation, unlike anything seen since George Wallace ran for president in 68 and 72. Okay. On that cheery note, uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to guide us through all of these uh, murky waters. Uh, and I want to thank our audience thank and, you. as always, our partners, the National Arts Centre for giving us the greatest view in Canada, uh, CPAC for making sure that people can watch, and the Canadian Bankers Association for paying the bills. Uh, thanks, everyone. There's a reception next door, uh, and have a good night.